morning. Welcome to Center Church. My name's Kevin, if I haven't met you before. We are currently in the New Testament book of Acts, walking through this book. And so if you've got a Bible or device, you can turn or swipe there, or you can also follow along uh, on the screen behind me if you'd like. We're going to be in Acts 4 today. As we get going this morning, I want to provide just a little bit of context for where we are in the book. So over several weeks, we have been looking at the story of man who had been crippled for his whole life. So for over 40 years, this individual was unable to walk. He begged for absolutely everything in his life. And then one day, a couple of Jesus' followers came upon this man, and he asked them for alms. And alms is basically food or money. He's a beggar, okay? So he's asking for help. And Peter, one of Jesus' followers, looked at the man, and he said, Look at us. And so the man, as a beggar, thought, This is the payoff, right? Like, this is what I do. I ask for help, and now I'm going to get my help. But then listen to what Peter says to him as this man looks at him. Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then Peter takes him by the hand, and his legs became strong, and he leaped up and began walking and then praising God for this miracle that had occurred in his life. Okay, that's not a fable, okay? It's not like a fairy tale. This isn't a Disney movie. That happened. A man sat and begged for 40 years. Then Peter and John come to this man and proclaim healing in Jesus' name. This is a phenomenal, life-altering story demonstrating God's power. And we talked last week about God's power, about the power that's contained in Jesus' name. Now, many people were amazed at what had happened, and they thought this was awesome. But not everyone. Other people, like the religious leaders of Israel, felt threatened by this because Peter was doing something. He was engaging in something that was greater than they could do. Okay? I said last week, If the religious leaders could have healed this man, they would have done that at some point in those 40 years, right? If they could have that on their resume, they could wave that around, they would have loved to have been able to do that. And so, Peter, doing this, got the attention of the religious leaders because he was taking their attention away from them. And so the religious leaders come to investigate. What is this all about? What's going on? And ultimately, what they do is they arrest Peter and John. But they didn't have any legitimate charges against them, so they had to let them go. They threatened them and told them to stop preaching Jesus and to stop doing the works that they had done to this man. And last week, we, we talked about the madness of this. What sickness resides in someone to not want healing to occur in someone who is sick? Why would these religious leaders want to put an end to to this flourishing in this man's body? Why would they want to put a stop to healing if this man has suffered for 40 years and he's healed? 
What kind of sickness inside of a person says, don't do that? Stop that. And this is where we pick the story up today. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at just eight verses this morning. So let me read these verses for us, and then we'll, we'll kind of walk through them. When they, being Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for this ongoing development that we're going to read about and look at today. Would you please cause us to be able to see good news in these verses? Would you cause our faith in Jesus to be built, that we would be able to understand deeper, more convincingly in our hearts, the fact that Jesus is what this life is about. And as much as we get caught up in our own stuff, would you shake us like this house was shaken this morning? Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, cause us to see you must be the priority and draw us to yourself supernaturally, miraculously. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so I titled the sermon today, God's Hand and God's Plan, because that comes right from these verses. And, and I'll try and come back to this idea, God's hand and God's plan, as we go through this sermon. So Peter and John have been released, and I want us to notice what they do immediately after, after they're released. It says that they went to their friends and shared what had occurred. Okay. This might seem really minor. It might be something that we would typically just kind of read right through. But I don't want us to just read right through this, okay? I want to focus in on this just a little bit because this speaks to one of our core values here at Center Church, which is community. So we, all of us, have grown up in a culture where we've primarily been taught to kind of keep things within our family circle, okay? We've got things that don't go outside our, the four walls of our house. We're going to be private about certain things. Also, many of us, if we've grown up in the church, we've probably grown up in church contexts where there was pressure to look like you were all put together, 
right? Like, you didn't struggle. Put the plastic smile on. We're doing just fine. The reality is, none of us are. None of us are. We're all broken, messy people. We are intended to be sharing life with each other. And not just the parts that make us look good. Not just the parts that make, that make us feel good. But all of it. We need to develop relationships that are full of trust so that we can confess sin with one another. We need to share our heartache with each other. What I want you to understand is this is normal Christian living, okay? It is not normal Christian living for us to just kind of live in a bubble, to come here on a Sunday, spend a little time with other people, and then go back and do our thing. That's not what normal Christian living is. Not at all. Okay? Stuff happens in our life, good, bad. And we're intended to share that with others. We rejoice with those who are rejoicing so that we can multiply our joy, right? We mourn with those who are mourning so we can divide the pain that's causing that mourning. We can share it, take it upon our shoulders with one another. So part of what I want to do with this is I want to keep casting vision, cultivating culture here for us especially if some of us are newer, right? Like this is, we want to be a church that's not like most churches, okay? We want to be in each other's lives. We want to share the tough stuff of life. And I understand as a pastor, that's not natural for many of us. So I want to keep casting the vision. I want to keep calling you to this. Okay, after sharing the news with their friends. They all prayed together. So let's take a look at this prayer and what we can learn from this. So it begins, Sovereign Lord. Okay? So this is part of God's hand. The ways in which he will work in this world. So sovereign is a concept that speaks to authority and control. So addressing God as Sovereign Lord provides a bit of a double emphasis that God is the one who possesses all authority and all control. That's what sovereign means. That's what Lord means as well. He is sovereign Lord. He's not one of many lords, one of many kings, one of many rulers. He is the sovereign Lord, the sovereign king over all. And the idea expressed here is God is in complete control. Okay, his plan is going to be accomplished, never thwarted. He is trustworthy, faithful. As Michael was talking about, as we just sang about, he is faithful. Even when we might not see it or feel it, his plan will not be thwarted. God is the one who has created everything. Everything that we can see with our eyes, God had a hand. He had a hand in creating. The land and the seas and the trees and the mountains and the sun and the moon. God created all of it. God is in control of things we cannot see as well. God is in control, not just here and now, but everywhere and always throughout all of history. He stands over all of it. So the religious leaders who questioned and arrested Peter and John think that they possess significant control or power in their context. But what they possess is laughable to God's power. Their control is nothing compared 
to the control that God possesses. Now, in this prayer, there's a reference made to David. So, David is known as the greatest king in Israel. In the eyes of many Israelites, he would be considered a sovereign lord, a great king. Not like God, but he was put into his position clearly by God. And David is being referenced here because this prayer is a quotation from the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 2. So we're going to talk about this in just a moment, but before we do that, I just want to observe how the biblical authors are teaching us to read our Bibles. So there's this Old Testament quotation, Psalm 2. Okay, this is many years before Jesus walks on the earth comes in the flesh. But what we're going to find is that Psalm 2 is being referenced in a way that's pointing explicitly to Jesus. That's how New Testament writers are reading Psalm 2. So David's comment that he made many, many years before Jesus came on the scene is being pointed to as pointing to Jesus. And part of the reason I want to comment on this is because some of you, maybe you asked, some of you have asked this question of me, but some of you might have this question in your mind. Like, why are you always pointing to Jesus? You're incessant about it. Why are you doing that? And the reason is because this is how the Bible teaches us to read the Bible. Over and over and over again, it keeps pointing to Jesus. And we would also say Jesus teaches us to read the Bible this way as well. One example would be Luke 24. He says that everything written before me in the prophets and the Psalms and so forth was pointing to me. And so Jesus himself also teaches us to read the Bible this way. Okay, so Psalm 2 speaks of Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. Okay, so this room is filled with with Gentiles, they are raging against God. And there are other people, Israelites, who are plotting against God. Now, as I was thinking about this this week, this idea kind of slapped me in the face as I considered the ways in which I might rage or plot against God. And the reason it kind of slapped me is because I wouldn't use those words about myself. I wouldn't think like I'm raging against God or I'm plotting against God. I I would say I made a poor choice. I made a mistake. I didn't rage or plot. So when we're reading these stories, there are appropriate times for us to read ourselves into these stories. And the reality is, we all do rage and plot against God in our own ways. This could be a, a comment, a harsh comment, that we have for somebody else, right? Maybe a friend, maybe a spouse, maybe a child. We're not just sinning against someone else. When we lash out in anger, we are also raging against God himself because we're raging against his creation, those he has formed. So this is an appropriate time to read ourselves into this story, even though it stings a bit to do so. 
And Psalm 2 then goes on to refer to kings and rulers being opposed to God's anointed. And then Acts 4 is helpful in bringing clarity to all of this. What, what does that mean? And what we read is, it says, In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So there's Roman rulers mentioned here who are complicit in the killing of Jesus. And if we go back to the Gospel of Matthew, we get a little help with this. Matthew 27, 24 says, When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning. So for Pilate, as someone who is kind of a ruler in a Roman colony, okay, the last thing that he wants is to be recognized by his higher-ups for a riot breaking out in his region. And the reason that the riot is breaking out is because Jesus and what he's doing and his teachings. Okay? So he's got to put an end to this. Rome wants order. Rome wants control. And so he must quell this. And who's rioting here? Well, it's the peoples of Israel. It's the religious leaders and then those that they are stirring up. Matthew 26, 3 and 4 says this, The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So in many ways, Jesus was well-loved by people because he healed people, because he fed people who were hungry. He loved people who were unloved, by most. He cared for people. He was gentle towards people. He gave his time and his energy for people. So there were many people who loved Jesus and wanted to follow him. And this was a big part of the problem, right? But not everyone loved Jesus. And this is why they had to hatch this plan stealthily to kill Jesus. So there's an intentional scheme to kill God's anointed, God's chosen king. Jesus is hated for all the kindness that he has shown. He's hated because he threatens the religious leaders. Not because he's making threats at them, but just because of who he is and what he's doing. He's a threat to their power, to their control, to their perceived sovereignty in that time and place. And so this plan is hatched to kill Jesus. And the plan is then carried out. Jesus dies a brutal death. But then we come to Acts 4.17, which we read last week. It says, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Right? So they, they come up with this plan for Peter and John and all of Jesus' followers in Acts 4. And they threaten them and say, they're doing everything they can to ensure that this is not going to spread any further. But here's the thing. All of this planning and scheming that's being done by Gentile kings and Jewish leaders is not what they think it is. Rather, it is all part of what we read whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. So what's going on here is they were actually doing the very thing they didn't want to do. 
They thought they were extinguishing Jesus by killing him, getting rid of this movement that he was starting, but in actuality, they were accomplishing it. They were fueling what Jesus was doing in the moment when they thought their control was pointedly displayed for all people to see. As Jesus hung on the cross, their control was being stripped from them. They're complicit in the sovereign plan of God as well. Even though they thought they were anti-God's plan. So the wisdom of God is seen in the subversive power he displays, both in the creating power, but also the subversive power as well. Okay, so you might ask, so what? How is this helpful for us today? The religious leaders thought that they were on God's side, right? They thought they were helping God, that they were doing His will. So there's this word, it's syncretism. The idea is we take some of what God says and we take things we hold dear and we try to combine them for a life that's preferable for us, okay? It's like straddling a fence, right? Like you've got one foot on each side and you're trying to take just the things that you like. But what this ultimately leads to is our selfish desires will ultimately take precedence. Whatever those things that we're saying, I'm not going to give up these things, they will eventually override. So this is, this is why every week we call us back to Jesus. We come back to the gospel and try and reorient ourselves around Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Because what we see in Jesus is we see someone who's giving himself fully for us to the point of death. And in his teachings, we read over and over, he calls us to not give part of ourselves, to not give up those things that are easy or convenient for us to give up. He says, give up all of it. All of it. And all of us have some things that we're like, okay, I don't want to give this thing up. But what we'll tend to do is we'll say, we'll focus on these things that we are willing to give up, right? Pat ourselves on the back and say, I'm good. Like, I made these sacrifices. But Jesus calls for all of us. All of you. All means all. Hear that clearly. He wants every single part of you. Okay. We now need to look closely at the requests being made by Jesus' followers in this prayer. We read, And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Okay, so there's an awareness of the danger that they find themselves in, right? Like these guys had just been arrested. So they're not dismissing the threat. It's real. They feel the risk that they face. So what would they pray then? In the face of this, what would they pray? What would we expect to be prayed next? Prayer for safety? Relief from persecution? Maybe a request to demolish one's political opponents? 
for God to demonstrate his power in some way? What they pray is, would you grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness? This is so interesting, right? They're not asking for obstacles to be removed. They're asking for courage in the face of opposition. It's almost as though they expect opposition, and they do. They've already experienced it, and they don't think it's done. Also, this is what Jesus promised. He said, in this world you will have trouble. It's true for them, it's true for us here and now today. So, I asked myself, what would cause them to pray this way? Because we could go into a ton of churches right now and look at a prayer board and see all kinds of prayers for health and safety. What would cause them to pray this way? They're praying in this way suggests that they know the end of the story. They believe that Jesus is going to be victorious. They know Jesus is powerful. They believe that he is the one who saves. And they want others to know this as well. They're not hoarding it for themselves. They're sharing it with others. They understand their and our tendency is to be intimidated by threats that are right in front of us. But they understand Jesus has power over whatever is staring us in the face. And so they want to speak of Jesus. They don't want people to be captive to their fears, to their anxieties. They want people to be enslaved to hope, They want people to rest in Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, what do our prayers say about ourselves? About what we believe about Jesus? Are we most concerned with temporary victories? Might our emphasis on seeking safety here and now Suggest we give little weight to Jesus and his ultimate victory? Do we believe that the end of the story is sure? Do we believe that Jesus wins? This isn't a pray better sermon. Okay, if you've been around Center Church, you know that's not where I'm going with this at all. This isn't pray better, but rather... Let's allow the content of our prayers to be a mirror to us, to examine our own hearts. And what, what do we value? What do we treasure? What do we really hope for? The reality is, all of us are surrounded by non-Christian people, people who are far from Jesus. Maybe that's just locationally. Maybe it's not relationally. I hope that there is relational closeness to people who are not Christians. What we're seeing here in this story is God desires to fill us with boldness 
so that we might share Jesus with others. I think it's really easy for us to kind of walk through life and think, ah, you know, so-and-so, they're far from Jesus, kind of wish that they knew Jesus, but we don't take a risk for that, right? And so we never really face the truth of the story, that people that we might say we love are actually headed to hell. And, and I'm not saying this as a guilt trip, right? I want to drive us back to Jesus. What does Jesus do when he looks at us and sees someone headed to hell? He chases after us. He gives of himself. He sacrificially loves us to the point of death. And that's what these followers of Jesus understood. They had been captivated by his grace, blown away by his kindness. And that's why they're praying this prayer. They understand people need Jesus. We need Jesus. Our families, our friends, our enemies, our neighbors, our co-workers need Jesus as well. This is life or death. This is serious. This is not something we ought to be flippant about. Okay. Lastly, I want to delve into the filling of the Holy Spirit that's referenced in these verses. So, back in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came and rested on his people and moved in a powerful way. This was a promise. So Jesus had left this promise, right? He said, wait for my gift to come. Wait for this promise, the promise being the Holy Spirit being given to his church. Now, at times in the Bible, we read of God's Spirit coming and moving in power. So some of us might think, well, the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. What happened? Like, did the Holy Spirit drain out? And so, like, he had to come again, or, like, what was going on that he had to come again? This does not mean that God's Spirit was absent. All right? So, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, this is Paul writing to Christians in the city of Corinth. And he says, Do you not know that God's Spirit dwells in you. This is true for Christians. If you're a Christian, God's Spirit dwells in you. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to guide us, to help us, to lead us, to instruct us. Okay, so also we would say as Christians, we read at other parts in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is given to us as the seal of our salvation. Meaning, when you are saved, that doesn't change. So, God's Spirit doesn't come because you were doing really good at obeying the rules and then leave once you start struggling obeying the rules, okay? You're not saved based on your performance, okay? So, God's Spirit comes and He seals us, He keeps us, He saves us. So, it's Holy Spirit comes in that way. But 1 Corinthians 12, 7 also says this. To each, this would be every Christian, is given the manifestation of the Spirit 
for the common good. So God's Spirit is given to Christians to help us, to lead us, to guide us, but not just for us, right? This says that it's given to us for others, for the common good. Okay, so I'm preaching right now, right? This would be a gift that God has given to me. And, and yes, I enjoy the prep. I enjoy studying for this, and I'm blessed in that way. But the intention is not simply for that, okay? So I can put my nose in a book, all right? It's so that you might benefit from this as well. And when others are up here preaching as well, that you might benefit from them also. So this gift was given to me for you, for others, so that you might be built up. Not so I can look a certain way. I mean, I probably look more foolish than good anyways, right? But the reality is, gifts are given for the building up of others. And here's the thing. Every one of us who's a Christian has been given gifts. You have. That you might share with the church. When this doesn't happen, you lose out on joy. So God gives us gifts so that we might exercise them, so that we might experience joy in operating and functioning in what he's designed us to be and to do. But it's not just you losing out on joy. Our church suffers as well. And if you're visiting and you're part of another church, that church suffers as well. People aren't being built up if we're not functioning in our gifts. The weight of what we're called to be as a church, the responsibilities we need to carry out, those things are not being shared. And what happens then is you get the people who are really committed and they start burning out and they start becoming bitter. If they don't, that's God's grace. And I'm not giving an excuse for people to get bitter, okay? We've got to work through that on our own. But there is this persistent call in the gospel to keep looking outside of ourselves because that's what Jesus has done to us and for us. He didn't just stay on the throne in all that was comfortable and luxurious. He came to this God-forsaken world. He entered in. He pursued us. He sacrificed for us. Now, if you're not sure of how God has gifted you in certain ways, I would say ask somebody else. Not just one. Ask others. Okay? What gifts do they perceive in you? How have you blessed others? It's a community project. All right? Spiritual gifts are a community project. We all, for those of us who call Center Church home, we all have vital roles in Center Church functioning in the way it's intended and building each other up as Jesus desires for us. So, if you're doing 42 things, I'm not calling you to do 43 right? We want equal distribution 
here. We want you to function in the gifts that God has given to you for your joy and for the good of our church so that we can be healthy and flourishing and happy in our functions that we're called to carry out. Okay, we end our sermons with what we call gospel application, okay? There's been a number of things I've talked about in this sermon. You could, be, you could hear and be like, I gotta, I gotta do better. I gotta work harder, okay? That is not what we're about, okay? We want you to be transformed by Jesus' grace, okay? The Christian life is not about what you do. The Christian life is about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So when we walk out of here today, I want us being reminded of who Jesus is. Because all that other stuff functioning in our gifts, that'll take care of itself. I want you to know who Jesus is. I want you to be blown away by his kindness, transformed by his grace. And all that other stuff will take care of itself. Okay, so where is the gospel in these verses that we're talking about this morning? Acts 4.30 says this, While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. On the cross, Jesus stretches out his hands to heal humanity, spiritually. That's what he's doing. Stretching out his hands and healing us. Following that earth-shaking event that is part of the pinnacle of human history, I'm talking about the cross, Jesus sent his followers out to continue what he had started. And now in Acts 4.30, we find his followers praying to see the power of Jesus manifested in them and through them that they would be courageous to proclaim the name of Jesus and that his works of healing would continue through them. Not so that they could look impressive, but so that we could continually point back to the one who heals. Jesus is our healer. Okay, so, so two points of gospel application for us then. First of all, God is sovereign. Okay, he is not unaware of what's troubling you. He's not uncaring in the midst of your struggle. He will work good in and through it. Hear me. He will work good in and through whatever is opposing you. He is in control. Surrender to him. So the call for us is let him do what he intends to do. Let him be who he is able to be. And we trust in this God who is powerful and above everyone and everything. And we trust him then as a sovereign God to be a healer. Okay, he's not a genie. He's not a genie, but he is a healer primarily spiritually. Jesus came to heal spiritual sickness because that's our greatest need. My greatest need is my sin. So hearts may fail physically. Cancer may come physically. 
Stuff is going to oppose us and befall us. But our greatest need is to be healed spiritually. We also believe he heals physically. And so we pray to that end, and we plead with God to do that as well. But we always want to prioritize. He is a spiritual healer first and foremost.